0: The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation.
1: everyone welcome to dead men do tell tales a podcast about forensic pathology related topics i'm nicole crum and i'm jordan taylor and we're both pathology residents who are going into forensic pathology and sorry this one's gonna be a little bit late coming out guys um
0: so always everything's always crazy always be any of the so for residents the
1: beginning of our new year starts on july 1st so Traditionally, which we still keep. I know a lot of like other programs come back two weeks earlier than that.
0: Yeah, but like, if you want to time your going to the hospital, right, <laughs> July 1st-ish is when all the new residents and interns will be starting. Things always just get thrown off when you have a whole new group of people in there, orientation and all that stuff,
1: so especially in the midst of a pandemic.
0: Yeah, that doesn't help. No. A lot of Zoom. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of being in the middle of a pandemic and a cultural uprising. Yes.
1: We kind of gave a teaser a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So our episode today is going to be about incustodied deaths. So what is the definition of an incustodied death? The National Association of Medical Examiners has a pretty comprehensive definition uh, with four parts. So One, deaths that occur under the perceived or physical control or restraint of a law enforcement officer, a correctional officer, or an authorized employee or agent of a district juvenile secure facility or youth residential facility, including being in pursuit, under arrest, in the process of being arrested, detained, or in the process of being detained. So even though it sounds like somebody who's just in a facility, it's also during the process of being arrested. Um, Which brings us to number two, being incarcerated in, committed to or on work release from a jail or correctional facility or a psychiatric hospital. Three, committed to a juvenile secure facility or four, which I, you know, which makes sense, but I didn't think of judicial executions. Mm
0: -hmm. Yep. So the kind
1: of summary
0: of that (laughs) in a slightly fewer (laughs) word, it's a death of a person in the custody of police, other authorities or in prison. So from the second that they start to arrest you through the process until you're in prison. And because we're going to be using these terms throughout, I just wanted to quickly define what jail versus prison is. And so jail, jail is a place for those awaiting trial or held for minor crimes. Versus prison is a place for convicted criminals of serious crimes. So jail is kind of like the lesser of the two and prison is the more serious place to be. And then I'm going to quickly give a list of kind of the ways that you can die or the ways that people generally die in custody. And briefly, cause versus manner, because this will become important. So cause of death is a specific disease or injury leading to death. So pneumonia, car accident. The specific thing that leads to your demise. Versus manner is one of five broader categories that these causes of death fit into. It's the how of why you died. (laughs) A cause of death could fit into multiple manners of death. Mm -hmm. Like you died of a gunshot. That could be a homicide, a suicide, an accident, or undetermined. So the other one in that is natural, which one can argue that It is the natural course of depression that leads to something like that. So I'm sure there is some argument that could be made that a gunshot could be natural in that series. Mm. But it is defined as suicide as far as we're concerned. But a lot of different causes can come from many manners. So I'm going to list some ways that people die. Some of them are causes and some of them are manners. But these are just the more common ways that people die in custody. One that is going to take a prime spot today is homicide by members of the police, homicide by other inmates, secondary to psychological or physical abuse. And again, remember, this includes things like military prisons, like Guantanamo Bay Mm. and that kind of thing. Capital punishment or the death penalty, as it's also called, because I know that sometimes people hear that and it doesn't always connect. It's not just spelling punishment with a P. It's not. Capital P. With a capital P. Uh, suicide Jeffrey Epstein in theory maybe possibly (laughs) accident so I mean accidents happen everywhere at any time and then the big group of natural deaths a lot of people have a heart attack because they have bad atherosclerotic disease they die of complications from AIDS there's a lot of reasons that people could die of a natural death but they are in prison when they die so you know It's called an in-custody death. Exactly. If you look at the vast majority of in-custody deaths, they're actually going to be natural. And they're going to be from people when people get older or have bad disease, which we'll get into a little bit more. Some raw numbers, and I'm going to apologize now because a lot of the numbers that we have aren't necessarily the most recent and up to date because a lot of the things that are published, anything that is a published article, which we would want to reference, tend to be at least a couple of years old. So... Add a few onto any of these numbers that we say. (laughs) Um, The number of people that are in custody, so this counts as under the supervision of a U.S. adult correctional system, which also includes, as Nicole had said earlier, that includes psychiatric hospitals. In 2015, there were 6,741,000 people. So almost 7 million people were in custody. And this so again this is under the supervision of the correctional system so that includes people that are on bail and things like that. Mm-hmm. The number that are actually incarcerated in 2015 was just north of 2 million, which is still a lot. Just still an insane number. And then from 2007 to 2010, so in a 3-year span, 17,358 individuals died in custody. So 20,000, 20-ish thousand people in three years. That's a lot. It is. And again, natural deaths still happen, but a lot of these are preventable. Not all natural deaths are preventable. And then one last stat that I wanted to throw out there was, is a mortality rate. So a mortality rate is deaths per 100,000 people. And in the U.S. in general, per year, essentially, it's 863 deaths per 100,000 people. It's actually lower in jails and prisons, which I found interesting. So it's 128 in jails and 264 in prisons. So, you know, almost a quarter less in prisons and about a seventh less in jails. And that makes sense to a certain extent because people in jails and prisons are generally a younger population than the general U.S. population. So I'm going to start with epi. My stuff is much more general and then Nicole will go into the specific epi around the current political social craziness. I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) Um, There's a group called the Mortality in Correctional Institutions that was formerly called the Death in Custody Reporting Program. And this is a group that collects data on deaths that occur while inmates are in the custody of local jails, state prisons, or the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So like I said, the vast majority of people that die in custody don't die during arrest. They die while they are in jails or prisons. Before 2015, the Bureau of, Federal Bureau of Prisons, which collects all this information, before 2015, they only reported aggregate death counts by cause, which is the direct disease or injury that leads to death, and sex. After 2015, they started submitting detailed data about each prisoner's death. So we got more granular data after 2015. Huh. But I still have a lot of pre-2015 data that tells me, that told me a lot of information. And again, I'm going to say one more time, a lot of this data is from a while ago. The majority of my data is from 2001 to 2007. So it has been 10 years, a little over 10 years. So... But it has been pretty steady throughout this period, so I think it reflects the current state pretty well. The group is called the Bureau of Justice Statistics. They're the ones that publish... They have a little thing at the top that says, 40 years of statistics. Mm. Essentially, they're collecting a lot of this information. The first thing I wanted to say was all-cause mortality. So that's, you know, grouping these things into larger categories pretty steadily from 01 to 07... About eighty to eighty-five percent of people died from illness, and then for almost every year, about four to five percent of people died from complications related to AIDS. So that was the second highest cause of death after illness was AIDS-related illness, which I found interesting because you know it's a pop an issue in certain populations, but the jail and prison population is an important one of those.
1: Yeah. So did they not, they didn't
0: include AIDS under illness? No, I they don't think so. They separated that, separated okay. that out. Um, and then suicide was about 6 to 7%. Okay, so I lied. AIDS was third. Um, suicide was about 6 to 7%. And then homicide, drug, and alcohol was in the 1% to 2% range. So there are still a lot of people that die from drug, alcohol, homicide in jails and prisons, but it's a very small amount. The vast majority of people die from illness in prisons. The other stat that they had that was interesting was the percent, the the race of people that are dying. And Nicole had actually looked this up. And I'm just going to use the 2007 numbers. So in 2007, there were about 600,000 black people in prison and about 500,000 white people in prison. Sorry, yeah, in prison. And per this uh, report... About 50% of people that died in prisons in 2007 were white. So there were more black people in prison than white people in prison. But about 50% of people were white that died and about 35% of people were black that died. So a greater proportion of the population that died in prison was white. And again, a vast majority of this is illness related Mm -hmm. and not violence related. But I find it interesting given the narrative that we have in America right now. And I think think it's important to note. Also, the vast majority of this population that died was older, which I think makes sense given that its illness, 55 or older, was almost 50%. So it all kind of tracks um, that the older population is the one that's dying. They also broke out the percent of race that died for the particular causes of death. And the only one where the black population was greater than the white population was for AIDS-related deaths, which about 70% of the AIDS-related deaths were seen in black people, and about 20% were seen in white people, which was the next highest number. And then 11% in the Hispanic population. So everything else, whites generally were were um, ahead. There's no winning in the death race, guys. <laughs> I found it interesting that the one that it was flipped was for aids related deaths. Yeah. And then I'm going to kind of lead into what Nicole's going to talk about by talking about some general numbers for arrest-related deaths, which the, the rest of this podcast is pretty much going to be focused on. And again, this is earlier. So this is from 03 to 06. The percent of arrest-related deaths by cause of death More than half of them, fifty-seven percent, were determined homicide by law enforcement. So the majority of arrest-related deaths are homicides, which I don't think anybody is surprised by. A little more than ten percent is drug or alcohol intoxication, again not too surprising. And then actually about eleven percent are suicides, which I find interesting because you would think that that is something that you would try to stop. I mean, I get, I mean, sure. It's hard to at many times, but right, not something I think of. And then accident, illness, and unknown are lower. But the vast majority of arrest related deaths are homicides by law enforcement. And again, when you look at arrest related deaths by race, from o three to o six, forty three percent were white and thirty two percent were black. So there are still, more white people that die from arrest related deaths than black people but it definitely doesn't paint the whole picture which like just by the raw numbers it doesn't paint i guess that's what my point is with all of this yeah these are the raw numbers but it doesn't tell you everything and either way nobody should die from law enforcement while they're getting arrested (laughs) that that's the that's the takeaway here that's always that's That's never okay (laughs) But it's just, I just found when I was researching this, I found the numbers interesting and I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. And this is a, I know it's a reported information from jails and prisons, and there is definitely places that do not report their deaths as they are supposed to. There is a study that shows that, you know, there are somewhere between, I would say like a quarter to half of these aren't reported that are then reported by medical examiners and then get fed back through the system on kind of a double check. But the amount of reporting is interesting.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. So given the current climate around racial injustice, my statistics were focused mostly on the use of force deaths that occur. So there is a national use of force data collection and it's a national data set that was established by the FBI, but they just opened it in January of 2019. Mm, And it contains data from only about 40% of uh, US law enforcement officers because data submission to this database is voluntary. And it's not collected in any sort of systematic or standardized way. So I wanted to just preface my statistics come a lot from databases that the media has actually generated by looking at media reports of police-related fatalities. So what do we know? And this is, again, mostly based on media databases. Nationally, about a 1,000 civilians are killed each year by law enforcement officers. And that includes, that's just arrest-related? I think it's just arrest-related, but, you know, I'm not entirely sure. Okay, no worries. And... Vice News obtained data on both fatal and non-fatal shootings from 50 of the country's largest local police departments, and they found that for every person shot and killed between 2010 and 2016, officers shot at two more people who survived. Oh, wow. So the actual number of civilians that are shot by the police each year is likely to be upwards of 3,000. Too many. Yes. And by Shot at or shot by? Shot by the police. Shot by. Okay. Yes. So by one estimate, black men are 2.5 times more likely than white men to be killed by police during their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, in another study, black people who were fatally shot by police seemed to be twice as likely as white people to be unarmed. Okay. And based on information from more than 2 million 911 calls in two U.S. cities, one study concluded that white officers that are dispatched to black neighborhoods fired their guns five times as often as black officers dispatched for similar calls to the same neighborhoods. Wow. Yes. And that's all national, but even locally in our supposedly very hippy dippy city, only 1 in 10 San Franciscans is black, but nearly 1 in 2 uses of police force in the city last year involved a black person. And I hate statistics. Yes, statistics. They're so fun. So that's what I had for the U.S. I had a couple things from other countries, Okay, but you said you had some more data from the U.S. I think the only other thing that I have from the
0: U.S. is arrest-related deaths by most serious offense, ah. which I thought was interesting So more than 50%, 57% were associated with violent offenses. So this is somebody that, you know, was getting arrested for homicide, assault, domestic violence, that type of thing. 57%. And then about 7% were for property offenses. So like burglary or larceny. Can I say that five times fast? (laughs) Um, And then drug offenses were about 7% as well. And then public order offenses were almost 15%. So those are things related to weapons, obstruction of justice, traffic violations. 1.8% of deaths, of arrest-related deaths, were from traffic violations. 1.8. 1.8%. Almost two in a hundred arrest-related deaths were for traffic violations.
1: Why do you have your gun (laughs) out if you're stopping somebody
0: The one that I find the most offensive is when no criminal charges were intended. Yeah. It's almost 4% of arrest-related deaths were for when no criminal charges were intended. So that's mental health transport, medical transport, or unspecified. What? So that, my best guess for some of these are caregiver was in danger. Mm. My best guess could very well be something else. But one of the things, I I was an EMT, and there were several times when we had to transport somebody that was under arrest. Mm-hmm. And there was a cop sitting in the back of the ambulance with me. Right. Because, one, they're under arrest, so they need to be under police supervision. And two, they want to protect you, is the theory. Um <laughs> But, you know, a lot of the times these people were intoxicated mm. or something, and they shouldn't go to jail. They should go to a hospital. Yeah. And so I'll talk about that a little bit later, too, for some of the um, unexpected deaths in custody and what those end up being. But, yeah, it's it's interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah, the, the only reason why I had a couple of globally things was because the contrast is just so stark. Oh, I so can't even imagine. Australia keeps a tally of its approximately five civilian deaths at the hands of the police per year. Oh. Five compared to a thousand. Well done,
0: Australia. I will tell you. I'll say how much
1: using a central government database. So yep. they have all of their data in one place, and I think it's mandatory. So unlike here, where it's voluntary and it's kind of scattered throughout all of these different databases, Australia <laughs> keeps track of its five. <laughs> and then similarly, in the United Kingdom. An independent inquiry is initiated every time a police officer is involved in a shooting. So it doesn't take place by, you know, the people in the department that the officer is coming from. And uh, Terry Goldsworthy, a criminologist in Queensland, Australia, said that part of the explanation for this might be that generally when a police officer pulls up to a car in Australia, they don't expect someone to be armed. So in the U.S. we have very liberal gun laws compared to a lot of other countries. And so some people attribute the amount of police homicides every year to the fact that police, you know, here they're scared because yep, somebody is more likely to have a gun than they are in Australia. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to say, there was this one study
0: by Southall et al. And this is an assistant medical examiner out of Maryland, I believe. And they looked at, Factors generally present in sudden, unexpected, and initially inexplicable deaths occurring in police custody in the USA. So these are things that people died in custody and they aren't sure why. And this includes um, arrest related. Hmm. And they said that for the vast majority of these, there are no signs at autopsy. And that when they look into the backstory, there were, and the final cause, that there were two big categories. One was behavioral. So the decedent was acting erratic or violent, like irrational or aggressive, mm-hmm. or there was a physical struggle. Again, there are still often no signs at autopsies, but that was one of the big categories. And then the other was often a physical cause, which is why we do an autopsy. So stimulant <laughs> abuse, natural disease, and obesity were the three that they mentioned. I know obesity counts as natural disease, yeah. but they separated that out because it was more, more common. Obesity causes all kinds of natural diseases, which is why I'm surprised they brought that out but this kind of brought me to the uh should they go to the hospital or jail question Ah. which as somebody who was an EMT and had to transport a lot of these people I think it's something that isn't I mean they are trained to identify certain things and if somebody is hurt or injured in theory they go to the hospital first but there was one time that when I was an EMT I think it was it was one of the the towns just north of Boston they actually had us respond to a jail because there was some there was somebody in jail that was sick. Oh. So we actually had to bring our first in bag and we had to go like into the jail itself. Interesting. And we went like through the various locked doors and yeah. the cop had to leave their gun locked in the thing before we went through. Mm. with our Because like, a person could walk so we were able to have them walk out. But we had to go in with our bag and like evaluate them and essentially say like, yes, this person should go to the hospital or not. And then we were able to leave
1: interesting i think we ended up not
0: transporting the person after we talked to them yeah but and i wish i remembered exactly how they were sick or injured but it's crazy to me that there is that question of like they made it all the way to the jail with whatever this was before they had something not even to the jail but they made it through enough processing that they managed to make it into the jail cell itself Oh, this wasn't like an established prisoner who had some sort of No, no, thing. no. This was like this was like in the this was like in the ca- the um local
1: town. Oh. Like we went into the police station and into the police's police oh, station's jail. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. I was thinking if somebody's in prison, don't they have like onsite no, medics? No, no, no. It wasn't it wasn't a prison, it was a jail. Okay. okay. Yeah. Sorry, I tried to say jail
0: many times yes. in there to try to keep that straight. But that is it is a it is a confusing point. Like a lot of this terminology, yeah. if you don't use it every, just like for us, cause and manner is obvious, right? right? But for everybody else, it's not. Yes. Even for a doctor that's not a medical examiner, cause and manner doesn't mean anything. Right. So this was a jail. But I think it's one of those things that a lot of people need medical attention and end up going to jail first, which should, is not necessarily the, next, the right step. Right. So if we talk about just in-custody deaths, yeah. I feel like a lot of these can be alleviated if we... You should go to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to share talk about one case today rather than doing our individual stories because we think that this deserves the attention and it goes into a lot of points that we think are very relevant in terms of the medical examiner's role within in-custody deaths. So very brief intro, George Floyd was trying to was trying to pay for something with a counterfeit $20 bill. Somebody called and told on him, for lack of a better way to put it. And on May 25th, 2020, four officers from Minneapolis came up to arrest him. It started with a discussion between Floyd and one of the officers. There was a brief struggle, a slight collapse, And then Floyd is walked handcuffed over to a wall. His gait is uneven in that walk. And he's sat down next to that wall. He then is picked up by his arms and brought back to the police vehicle, which he falls to the ground for a moment before that. There seems to be a brief discussion. And again, the gait disturbance is noted. And then there is some slight confusion about how he ends up on the ground exactly. But... Floyd ends up on the ground. There are three separate police officers that are kneeling on Floyd. One is kneeling on his neck, and that's David Chauvin. And then there are two other officers that are exerting pressure on his torso and his left arm, which is still handcuffed. And then there is a fourth officer that's standing over him. And for nine minutes, there is pressure being put on his neck by a knee. At Multiple times during this, he is heard to say, I can't breathe. At multiple times, the officer has been noted, I think, recently to say, yeah, there's oxygen moving in and out if you can talk, essentially. And then at some point, Floyd becomes unresponsive. They notice this less than a minute later, but still like about 45 seconds before bystanders really notice that he's not moving. Yeah. And then... Two minutes later, an officer checks his pulse. A minute later, the knee doesn't come off. A minute later, after they checked his pulse, and then finally the knee comes off and they call paramedics. And we all know the story from there. So messed up.
1: Just, just a little bit. So messed up. Just a lot of it. So all of that happened on May 25th. And on May 29th, the country was told that the autopsy of George Floyd revealed no physical findings that support a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxiation and that potential intoxicants and pre-existing cardiovascular disease likely contributed to his death. Now, the country was told this, but this was all taken from a charging document that utilized politicized interpretations of medical information from the autopsy. So this isn't a report from the
0: medical examiner. No. This is the medical examiner at that time actually stated the cause and manner of death is currently pending further testing. Yes. This is a document that's written by attorneys based on the info from police and representative of the medical examiner's office. This is not a definitive autopsy conclusion. Nope. This is
1: not from the ME's office at all. And this document falsely overstated the role of Floyd's coronary artery disease and hypertension in his death. And in doing so, they perpetuated stereotypes um, about black bodies to discredit him as a victim of murder. Yes. And all of this caused a bunch of outrage at the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office, who still hadn't put out their report. Because people didn't understand that this was from the charging document and not the autopsy report.
0: Which, to be fair, shouldn't be put on the onus of the general population. It should have been definitely more explicitly stated that what it was. Because I can't say that I should expect a layperson to understand the difference between that, right? Right, no, But definitely. it's was definitely the information was not portrayed in any reasonable way to the media or to people because it's so easy to misinterpret that. Yes, so easy. So, what actually came up from the autopsy? Right? Well, what did the autopsy reveal? So, one thing that, as Nicole said, that the Charging document says is the autopsy revealed no physical findings that support a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation. And if you read the actual autopsy, the first three headings, there are subcategories in all of this, were blunt force injuries, natural diseases, and no life-threatening injuries identified. So blunt force injuries include mainly facial injuries, so forehead, face, upper lip, shoulders, hands, elbows, legs, as well as some patterned contusions on the wrist, consistent with handcuffs. Natural diseases, as Nicole said, atherosclerotic disease, so some heart disease, as well as this random left pelvic tumor, which. You find a lot of random incidental things at in autopsy that yeah. don't contribute to anything. <laughs> so this was just an interesting little baby cancer that they found that did not contribute to his death at all. And then the third main point in this autopsy was no life-threatening injuries identified. So no facial or oral mucosa or conjunctival petechia, so tiny bruises. No injury to the neck muscles or the larynx, which is your the breathing part of your of your neck. And then no chest. Wall soft tissue injuries, so no rib fractures, no bruises around his chest, and then essentially other things around that were negative for trauma. Does this mean that he didn't die from asphyxia? No. Absolutely not. Definitely not. But it was noted. And a couple other things I want to say while we're just kind of reading the medical examiner report. He was positive for COVID. He also was found to have hemoglobin S, which is sickle cell disease, which isn't vastly uncommon in the black population. They actually found it because you'll find this more interesting. (laughs) When they were looking at slides, they saw some weird sickled cells in some of the vasculature. Oh, yeah. Like under the microscope. Yeah. And so they actually went back and then tested him for hemoglobin S and they found that he is a carrier for sickle cell.
1: Oh, wow. Because of
0: this. So the reason that this is helpful is that now his family can know. Yeah. And if, you know, his daughter had maybe his daughter can be tested and it's something like if his daughter has the trait and then has a child with somebody that has a trait, they can look into things for treatment for the future children. Right. It's just important to know. The other big point on this uh, autopsy report was toxicology. And he did have quite a few substances in his system. So he had fentanyl, he had methamphetamine, he had some nicotine, some caffeine and some THC. I think the, Most important thing from all of this is the fact that there are no life-threatening injuries only means that he died from something that didn't leave a mark on his body. You can easily kneel on somebody's chest for long enough that they can't have chest rise, but it might not leave a bruise. Just like when you impact something over a small surface area, Versus over a large surface area, right? If you have the same force over a small area, it's a more concentrated force. So it's more likely to leave a mark, right? If you have that same force over a larger area, you're less likely to leave a mark, but it can still cause the same thing. So if you have three different people kneeling on your body, right, it's spread out over a larger area, but it's not necessarily going to leave a mark. So he might not have had any marks, but that doesn't mean that his respiratory system wasn't compressed to the point
1: that caused him to die. And we talked about that a lot in our episode on strangulation, how asphyxia is often a diagnosis of exclusion or using the circumstances surrounding the, the death. Exactly.
0: And I think this is a really important thing where medical examiners don't just use the body to come to their conclusions. They use all of the surrounding evidence as well. Like if you just got this body and you didn't have the video... You couldn't necessarily come to the same conclusions. Right. But the video makes it undeniable. And then the other significant conditions that were present, including the cardiovascular disease, including the drugs, you know, they don't, they're not there to excuse the death. They're simply there because they probably made death more likely. I am not saying that George Floyd would be dead right now if he didn't get knelt on by David Chauvin for nine minutes. Right. Not saying that at all. Just somebody who isn't impaired might not have died as quote unquote quickly. Somebody with cardiovascular disease might have had more reserve. Probably still would have died in this situation. But this extra information is just given. So we have all of the information. And to say that, you know, they likely
1: contributed in some small amount to his death. Not that they caused it in any way. And secondary conditions, contributing factors like these are listed for all types of deaths and all autopsies. So it's not like a unique situation. Mm -hmm. It's just given all of the media coverage and everything, these things are then taken out of context and made to seem more important.
0: So one important part from that video was George Floyd multiple times said, I can't breathe. And it was said back, multiple said like, Well, you can obviously breathe if you can say that. But I can't breathe doesn't mean that there's no air moving into the lungs. It can mean a lot of things. It can mean that your respiratory muscles are getting tired. So it's harder for you to breathe. It could be that the blood flow into your lungs isn't going as well. You have three people kneeling on you. Cardiac return. So getting that blood back into your heart and into your lungs, it's not happening as well. You can have a partial airway obstruction. So it's not completely blocking stuff off, but it's less. And then the other big one is acidosis, where you essentially you have a buildup of acid. So your brain registers all of these things as I don't have enough oxygen, and that results as I can't breathe. And remember, oxygenating has two parts. You need to get air in and out, and you need to get blood round and round. And if you aren't doing both of those things, you're not adequately oxygenated. So he was able to move a little bit of air in and out. He was able to get a little bit of blood round and round. But between all these factors, both weren't happening. And he was not getting enough oxygen to survive. So could he breathe a little bit? Sure. But not enough. And that's, it's been shown multiple times that people in positional asphyxia like this will say, I can't breathe. And that means something. Don't ignore that. Although apparently police are taught that if they can talk, they can breathe, which is not true. Sounds like they need a little
1: bit more training, maybe. (sighs) Holding my tongue. (laughs) So even though this charging document was making all of these other possibly contributory findings more predominant as a potential cause of death. The eventual cause of death was listed as cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating law enforcement, subdual restraint, and neck compression, which is an interesting way of phrasing the cause of death. And I don't know how much you want to get into this. No, go for it. Like at least I have always been taught that cardiopulmonary arrest is not a cause of death. That is a mechanism, and it is the end mechanism of all causes of death. And there was this very kind of emotional article that came out about the gaslighting of America in terms of the way that the cause of death for these kinds of cases where black men are killed by police are listed. Okay. So this phrasing is pretty kind of passive, And, like, listing the cardiopulmonary arrest first is just, like, a very odd way of writing the cause of death statement. And there are kind of mixed views in the field based on what happened after this came out on the nameless serve. One very strong voice in the field, um, Dr. Roger Mitchell, he's the chief medical examiner of Washington, D.C., And he is considered like an expert in police related homicide and deaths caused by injury and other preventable diseases. He has talked a lot about this and how, like, many in the field wouldn't have written it up in the same way Mm -hmm. um, because he's quoted as saying, We need to be clear what we're emphasizing in the diagnosis, and that emphasis should be intentional so from what the world has seen we know that george floyd's intoxication or his heart condition played absolutely no part in his death but like the way that the cause of death statement is phrased it's not as definitive as it could have been yes
0: i guess the thing that i that i'm curious about is if you pulled a bunch of pathologists forensic pathologists what would people have signed it out as? I mean, manner is homicide. Nobody's arguing that. Right. Manners is definitely homicide. But would it be asphyxia? Secondary to, or asphyxia, subdual restraint and neck compression by law enforcement? Yeah. Would it be acidosis? I think the, the question is, we don't exactly know what the disease or injury was leading
1: to it specifically? Well, but even then, so, cardiopulmonary arrest and acidosis are mm, both mechanisms. Yes, so I'm not saying that they're that that's right. I'm just
0: saying I'm curious what people are gonna say.
1: Right. Well and then the thing is that I mean we've said this that his underlying cardiovascular disease and drug intoxication do not contribute. Do not contribute. He would so, have he would have died even if he didn't have those.
0: Right. So he then, would still be alive, D-Day, if he was not restrained by law enforcement
1: kneeling on his neck for nine minutes. Right. So then his definitive cause of death is, is asphyxia due to neck compression or chest compression, however you want to say it, by law enforcement. Due to restraint and yeah, yeah. Restraint and neck compression. So yeah. asphyxia. Asphyxia. Yeah. I guess I wonder the if... specific ways in which you would list the cause of death, it just seems like it all boils down to it is asphyxia from the law enforcement. Yes no matter what other words you want to use. So like the addition of the mechanism in the cause, just, I guess I wonder if Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office usually does that. Yes. I
0: also wonder how much of it was CYA. Ah. So one thing I think this is a good time to go into this is (laughs) there was... When the first charging document came out and gave their brief summary thing, there was also this report by a second person that did an autopsy on George Floyd. Mm-hmm. So the first autopsy that is performed by a forensic pathologist, be it a medical examiner or part of a coroner's office, is the Only independent autopsy. The first legally mandated autopsy is independent. Forensic pathologists are paid by the state or the county that they work in, but they are not hired by the state to protect the state. They are working for the people within the county. So, and again, not every system's perfect.
1: Most are not. (laughs) Most are not.
0: But the medical examiners are not naturally in favor of one person versus the other. Verse, this second autopsy by Dr. Michael Baden, who is very well known to have done several very high profile autopsies, he was actually paid by the family. And I'm not saying that his conclusions were incorrect. I'm just saying that a second autopsy is paid for by a certain person And forensic pathologists, I like to think as my future colleagues would all do it independently and come to the proper conclusions no matter what. But the second autopsy doesn't get some of the things that the first autopsy gets. So the first autopsy gets to do a good external exam. They get to see all the organs in the right place. They get to see the actual bullets, not in this case, but like if there are bullets, they would get to see where they actually are. They would get to see the entire organ. One of the things that people often do in a strangulation case is they keep the neck block, which is the larynx and pretty much the, the breathing tube. have a
1: better way to put it. Um, I love when you call the larynx the breathing tube. <laughs> it fills my heart with joy. I try. I mean, not much else does these days, but you mm. calling it the breathing tube does.
0: <laughs> so likely, Dr... Um, Andrew Baker, who is the chief medical examiner of Hennepin County Medical Examiners, retained some tissue. They probably retained the trachea. They probably retained part of the heart. This is something that the second autopsy would not necessarily be able to see. Now, generally, there are a lot of good photographs that are taken during the first autopsy. So there there are things to look at, but there are multiple times when a second autopsy sees something on the body and they might interpret a scalpel nick as an injury for example. Mm. And unless things are documented perfectly, that first autopsy is the only one that is getting to see everything together. So Dr. Michael Baden made his statement around the same time the charging documents were released. And he said that, you know, this was a homicide and this person died of asphyxia. Versus Dr. Andrew Baker did not come right out and say that this person died of asphyxia, but it's important to know that that first autopsy is the only independent one, and then every subsequent autopsy. Some are done by law enforcement offices still, but most are done hired by somebody independently, which one would like to hope would remain unbiased. But it is harder when you are getting actively paid by somebody for that.
1: Although I do want to add that we've talked about this before. Medical legal death investigation offices are often supremely underfunded. Yes. And there's not a whole lot of standardization in the industry, which is super unfortunate. Um, And many departments actually work closely with, if not under the supervision of law enforcement. So we've talked about sheriff coroner's offices where the medical examiner is appointed under the sheriff coroner, which there is a conflict of interest there, clearly. So there have been efforts to fully disentangle death investigators from police before, and not a lot of those get passed through because not many people know about them. Not many people understand why they're important. Uh, But there was a survey of medical examiners that found that 22% of death investigators have experienced pressure from political officials to change findings in an investigation. So even though it's like the first autopsy and it's through this like supposedly independent system, there is still pressure because they're getting their information from law enforcement maybe. Or they work closely with law enforcement because if there's a homicide, law enforcement sometimes attends the autopsy. And so, you know, there are people that you get to know. Yes. So like one in five people. One in five death investigators have experienced pressure
0: and this kind of goes into that san joaquin issue where the the coroner was the one that determined that manner of death so that's the homicide accident suicide natural undetermined so if somebody dies has an in custody death and this was this particular incident with san joaquin were in custody deaths there were people that were dying at the hands of law enforcement officers and the medical examiner wanted to call them homicides because they died at the hands of the law enforcement officer but the coroner ended up classifying them as accidents because it was an accident that happened in the course of subduing a page of a decedent and medical examiners are doctors forensic pathologists are doctors that are trained for this Coroners are not necessarily doctors that are trained for this. So cause and manner are different. And manner is not always determined by a doctor, yes. which is scary. And
1: a homicide does not mean murder. Right, exactly. So, It just means death at the hands of another. But often when you classify a death as a homicide, it then is able to go to trial yes. in some form or other. Versus an accident, less likely to go to trial and even if it does, less likely to have
0: be prosecuted be prosecuted, and they can be there definitely have definitely been times especially when you have something like undetermined where you the medical examiner cannot definitively say, but the lawyer feels that they can pursue this charge and sometimes they are convicted uh, but everything is murky there is unfortunately no right answer really the medical examiner should be completely disentangled from law enforcement from law enforcement but yeah. As we talked about in one of our first episodes, often these really small jurisdictions, there are no doctors. There's like one doctor that covers like the, there are two doctors in Vermont that cover the entire state. So there has to be Granted, there's a medical examiner system. They do get to determine manner of death, but you work with local law enforcement to help gather information around these things because
1: you cannot always be everywhere at once. There's just one other thing I wanted to mention about that gaslighting article. Yeah. Was that they talked about how listing the medical conditions, it, like, essentially, it sounded like they were arguing for not listing the medical conditions, which uh, I don't agree with. Yes. I think death is complicated, and that if you don't list the other possible contributory factors, then it's just like an oversimpli- oversimplification of the numerous factors that can play a role in death. Yes. So, While I do think it's important that the cause is, like, clearly stated... Yes. Not listing the other possible contributory factors is not the answer. Yes. Which brings me to the point of death certification in general. There's a U.S. standard form for death certification that's, you know, like, here's the decedent's information. Um, what's the cause of death, all of this stuff. Yes. So one of the reasons why we don't have good data on in-custody deaths is because the way in which you list that this was an in-custody death is very variable from office to office.
0: Very variable.
1: Yes. So in this case, they wrote in the cause of death statement that it was law enforcement were involved But sometimes it's just like you write that the location that the death occurred was prison.
0: And so somebody has
1: to go through the data and kind of like tease out the different areas where, oh, this was an in custody death because they said so in this box. But other places will say it in this box. So there are a lot of people now that are advocating for just having a simple checkbox on the form that says that something is an in custody death. And okay. if you want to tease it out even further, to have it be like, it's in custody, and then what phase? So it was during arrest. It oh, was oh, while incarcerated. Yeah. It was, oh, they were at the hospital, but they were still being supervised by the police, you know. So it really help with surveillance. Okay. And the underreporting of these types of in-custody deaths. So this was a
0: lot. It's horrible and scary, and I... Would like to have hope, but it's hard to have hope right
1: now. <laughs> um, Although I am feeling more hopeful now than I have with previous cases of police violence, high profile police violence cases against black people. It just seems like there's a lot of momentum right now. Yes. And that governments are actually trying to make change. Like London yes. Breed has been talking about... Reallocating funds from the police to community based programs to support black communities and doing all these other things, and it sounds great. I just hope that it actually happens. Yeah. Well, like Oakland, there are no more police in schools
0: in Oakland. Like, they removed all cops from any schools in Oakland. Not that schools are open
1: right now, but. <laughs> None of schools are
0: but like, for. But that's a huge step. Right, yes. Like, steps are being made. Minneapolis is reworking their entire um, system, their entire system, their rid- contract yes. with the cops. And it's as somebody who was an EMT and who worked very closely and who I knew Sean Collier who was the MIT cop that was killed in the Boston bombing and I know that there are many institutions that judge the whole group based on the worst person and... There are bad cops out there. There are good cops out there. It's always hard when you know a good one. It's hard when you know the person that literally helped stop the try, or tried their hardest to help stop, you know, the people that bombed the Boston Marathon. Yeah. Um, but there needs to be a system in place to catch the bad apples and to do something the first time. Not the fifth time. Yeah. The first time. Or the millionth time. Yeah. Or all the
1: people that are still, that still have jobs. Um, Yeah, there's no reason why cops can't be held accountable. Like, doctors, we have to report every incident that happens. Police should have to do the same. It's the unions.
0: Which is hard, because unions are fantastic for some things. Right. And so scary for others. There's no good way to end this episode. We're no. not going to end this on anything good. We so, are so. so let's just go to our social
1: media. <laughs> yeah. So if you liked this, I don't know why you would, but if you liked this and any of our other episodes, <laughs> if you like the way that we portray the information, hopefully generally impartially <laughs> yes. and um, informatively, <laughs> please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's how we get boosted up on the various podcasting platforms and other people can hear about us.
0: You can visit our website at podcast.com where we link to all of our sources in
1: our episode guide. On Twitter, we're at Dead Men Do. On Insta, we're at The Dead Tell Tale Tales. And our Facebook page is Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast. And as always, you can send us an email through
0: the website or directly to the Tales at gmail.com. And I know that people are probably going to have comments and stuff on this episode. So please, please teach us. We always want to learn if we've misstepped, if we said something wrong, we are doing this podcast so we can learn as we go. So anything and everything that you guys have, we really would appreciate.
1: Yes. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Anna Reed. She emailed us a couple of weeks ago asking if we were going to cover uh, in custody deaths and what was going on with the George Floyd autopsy. So it's it's listeners like Anna who write into us that give us fodder for future episodes. And as Jordan said, we are always interested in learning. In medicine, you are a lifelong learner. Yes. So please, if you have something to say, we want to hear it. Yes. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you.
0: And have a good rest of your week.
1: Yes, Yes. Yeah, and we go. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye. What are we doing for fun next time? I just... Stop this. <laughs> <laughs>